In the sitting, <clears throat> just before our short break, did you hear a new bird sound? It was new to me. I hadn't heard that. There have been lots of nice, lovely bird sounds all week. But this was a different one. And so my mind, I felt a smile just come upon my face. And uh, I also could see after about the second or third of this unique little, I don't know, it sounded like it was singing its little heart out. But that's just what my mind thought it was doing. And I could feel, not in words, but a little stirring between hearings of waiting for the next one. Just very subtle. Then there it would come. And then I could feel that stirring again. And then it didn't come. It ended. And then I could feel it was infinitesimal suffering. It was sort of like <laughs> microscopic. <laughs> and then, I don't know about you, but if you I've been doing this for a long time. You know, at first we talk so much about the problem of thinking and quieting the mind and so forth. Um, and thinking is not our enemy, but what has happened, because I do this a fair amount, is that the thoughts start changing. So what the mind starts thinking about are Dharma things. So I have, you only have to listen to me every other night. <laughs> I have this little Dharma teacher who lives inside, and he's wising me up all the time. And so he's saying, what do you mean that bird was so, that sound was so cute? <laughs> Lovable. That's condescending. That bird, was, that was his normal sound. Uh, and then said, uh, for all we know, the bird is looking at us and saying, aren't these humans so cute? Look at them <laughs> making these sounds all day long. Uh, oh, I like it here. Let's stay longer. They don't make those sounds so much here at IMS. This is a nice place to be. And it was just going on. Finally, I saw it, and it fell away, and there was some silence. And then it said, ah, it's so wonderfully silent. <laughs> it would be if you would shut up. <laughs> All this happened in about a minute and a half. So there's a new kind of suffering that we give you when you come here because we encourage you to get to know your own mind. And then when you start seeing how your mind, uh, I hope you have a sense of humor, because it is hilarious. <laughs> All day long, reassuring itself, rehearsing, practicing, dredging up old memories, planning what it's going to say, and it doesn't even say it when the time comes. <laughs> again and again. And now and then, there's some pure, beautiful silence. Nice. Um, where we left off, uh, what I was trying to convey is an attitude of, of a, a different way of looking at retreat life. Um, what was being suggested, this is one way to look at it, and I've seen it this way for some time. I'm not going to go over everything, but just a few, few points. Is that um, prior to retreat, prior to retreat says life, in fact, what, uh, what prompted me to start looking at all this was uh, at the end of every retreat for years, and it still goes on, and I'm not saying it's wrong, it's just different than what I'm saying. Uh, there would always be an integration talk. Now, I told you about this. We're going back to the real world, so-called real world. What does that say about this world? Uh, and the staff would go into yogi land and then go back to work. Well, what I was trying to say, there's just life period. Daily life, intensive practice, retreat life. As far as I can tell, there's just daily life, wherever we go. And each situation is different and calls for different kinds of action. Different actions are correct. Each situation has certain, uh, enables us to do certain things a certain way and not another way. Uh, and so uh, I have found it extremely helpful uh, when we, to me, uh, fragment, compartmentalize life into 
this is a re- this is retreat life. This is the real world life. This is yogi land. This is kitchen life. Um, and then what we're, we're really saying when we say now let's have an integration talk, we're trying to stitch together two worlds that we've separated in the first part in the first place with our mind. When we come here, this is a real world, and there are certain challenges that are not here. And there are new ones that are here. I'm sure you know that. Certainly the new people know it. It's not all a piece of cake. So there are different challenges. When we leave here, and for the new people, you will be able to leave here. It's not a lifetime. <laughs> In fact, one of the happiest day is always the seventh day, and people always, we go around, it's, oh, this practice is so wonderful. That's not the reason. It's school's out. You know, it's over. We can go back and go to restaurants and bars and movies and Uh, but underlying all this, the, the motivation, at least from my side, is that um, as I look around, probably all or most of us are, are lay people. Some of us perhaps have been monks or nuns or maybe will become monks or nuns, and that can be a, a wonderful path if it's right for you. But that probably isn't the path for most of us here. And we need a practice that's appropriate for us. Otherwise, what tends to happen, having been in and out of those two worlds, which is the holy life, because it's done there too, and then the worldly life, that's us. We're even putujanas. We're people who have a fair amount of dust in our eyes. But that's really, in a sense, anyone who isn't awake. Um, The monastic, to me, it's a convention. Uh, It's not just me saying it. Monks say it too. It's a convention, a brilliant one, invented, the Buddhist invention, uh, to intensify and perhaps optimize getting free, waking up. The, the situation is organized to help us do that if you're cut out to do it that way, which includes celibacy and many other restrictions. Uh, and that, I've seen it very, very helpful and beautiful for certain people if it's right for you. And then I've also seen it where it's not at all. And it's just another deranged way. But the problem is, teachers come here, and most of my teachers have been monks. And as helpful as they've been, and some of them have been as helpful as my parents, who I've loved, still love, and who are great parents, um, some of what their suggestions were were not really helpful and amounted to, if you keep practicing hard as a layperson, then what will happen well, this actually happened. I may as well give you a fact. Uh, one of my teachers, um, I think I could say it because it's even on tape, I believe, somewhere. Uh, he, uh, someone asked him a question. Is, he was an Ajahn from the forest tradition. I'll leave his name out. It's not important. And we taught a 22-day retreat together here. And uh, it was a, a question and answer period. And someone asked him, do you have advice for how we can practice as lay people when we go home? And uh, this uh, Ajahn uh, said all kinds of things about practice, very intelligent, sensible, that all of you know. And he said, if you keep doing this in a, for a few years, then you'll just want, you'll want to drop the confinement of being a layperson and ordain and become a monk. Oh, I get it. In other words, uh, being a layperson is just, if we're lucky, we'll, practice our, we'll learn our way out of that one so that we can become monks. But supposing we don't do that, and I don't see armies of people rushing to the monasteries. Can't wait. I don't see it. And so we need a practice that is appropriate for us in the 21st century. And the teachings, the essence of the teachings are timeless. As far as I can tell, I don't think we should bother with them. The essence of the teachings have nothing to do with any particular culture or historical period. Suffering is suffering. If you read ancient texts, people were suffering then, too. And the dynamic was the same. The content was different. They didn't suffer over guns and nuclear weapons, but maybe bow and arrows and swords. And they were, they were it just, we humans seem to know how to do that. We don't know how to do other things. And so there's a, a universal element in at least this tradition that I recognize that is precious. And personally, 
uh, want to conserve. And then it has to be adapted to the culture that we live in to conserve it. Because if we don't adapt it to our conditions, we actually won't conserve it. And being in a teacher role for a number of years, I've erred in both directions. Sometimes I've defended, uh, I've been so traditional uh, and blocking out what needed to be done in a Western 21st and 20th century and then 21st century in situation that I was actually, uh, was not wise. That is, I was too wedded to certain cultural aspects that came from a, a totally different culture. It could be Korea, Japan, Thailand, Burma, India. Beautiful there, but not too relevant here. But I, uh, we were also trying out new identities in those days. I think people still do it. We were taking on out, you know, we were just everyone. Somehow being an American was the last thing you wanted to be. We had to pretend we were Indians or Tibetans or I, I don't know what. That wore itself out because finally you're stuck with who you are, <laughs> as usual. Okay. Um, and then the other mistake is I was wrong. I was too traditional. And then you become Mr. Free Spirit. You know, just chuck it all and just awareness. Open up to life and the wonders of life. And that was going a bit too far because there's a lot of help that comes from the ancients. Why do we have to invent fire for the first time? It's just stupid. There have been some very brilliant insights into human life and forms have been developed, one of which is a retreat. It's a beautiful form. Uh, I want to protect us from a misunderstanding. What, what I was attempting to do, and we'll attempt to do a little bit more this evening, is to upgrade ordinary activities. In other words, if, what I'm trying to say is there's just life. Life in the form of a retreat, life in the form of whatever your life is. As a doctor, as a carpenter, as a housewife, as an unemployed, whatever your life is. Um, I'm trying to uh, rescue it in a way from being devalued as, in quotes, not spiritual. And what spiritual is somehow, it only goes on in special places, sometimes with special costumes and special hairstyles. Uh, and when the mind is clear, it sees all this. Now, if you, it, these are forms, and if you take them, if they help you, fine. I tried. I, I became like Teflon. Nothing stuck. I tried it, different outfits, different hairdos, different, different names, different, you know, chanting in Korean for 45 minutes in the morning and Chinese for, you know, finally, you know, I'm just a Brooklyn Jew, for God's sakes. <laughs> okay, does that mean I have to junk the whole thing? No, because uh, what I learned has changed my life for the better. So it's not that, I, and as lay people, we go back to work, to school, to family life, whatever your life is. Let's say those are three obvious elements, components of, of living. Uh, they have relationship, big one. Uh, that has to become not just merely incidental. That has to become a practice. And we have to not just say our, uh, my daily life is my practice. It can become the biggest cliche there is because we still don't value it as much. What we really value is sitting a certain way. In uh, Cambridge and even here, when our people will come. In Cambridge, we all work very hard to convey to people that the practice is th their life. And the challenge is, and this is what I'm getting at, we're trying to upgrade life. There's just life, which is all precious. There's nothing trivial. Vacuuming, you know, we use toilets, cleaning the toilets the other evening. All of it, because it's not the activity, it's the quality of your life, since most of our time is spent doing that. It's not going to be on a cushion. If it is, great, then that will be your life, but it isn't. Okay, so in upgrading what makes up perhaps 95 or 99 percent of our life, I don't mean to downgrade contemplative life, not at all. I'm just trying to show the beauty in each. That is, while you're here, this is a, I value this as much as ever, maybe more so. It's just that when we leave here, it's not that our life as a Dharma practitioner or a spiritual person 
is over. And now we go back to the real world, the dirty, noisy, meat-eating, pro-war world, and you know, whatever else you want to add on to it. Um, that practice won't work. And then we become like hothouse plants. That the only time we can be happy, it's like the flying Willenders, if you recall. We, we come running to these places, and this is where it really happens. And you get biases from both sides. Because there are many people who say, daily life is the real acid test. Do all this sitting and all, and then the test is when you go in, the, in your relationships. I don't know about that. Or then you have, sitting is the real thing. Let's face it. Come on. What you're saying is cute, Larry, but really, we all know that this is it. You don't see the Buddha vacuuming or making love. <laughs> this is it. Okay. Uh, when I'm saying it's all it, while we're here, this is a unique and very precious form. And some of us are cut out to do a lot of it, by all means. Some of us would like to do a lot of it, but can't. We have to support a family. We have to do, have a full-time job. We just can't. That doesn't mean that you can't grow and flower. One of the means of ignorance in the Buddha's teaching is we're ignorant of our full potential. And uh, what is being suggested, and I hope by the time you leave, at least a little hint of it can come get across, is that your full potential as a human being can be brought out anywhere, even cleaning a toilet. It's your attitude, it's what you bring to it, to your work, to, your, to relationship, to school, to being unemployed, to being, uh, having a job you hate but you have to stay with it, having a job you love but you get laid off. Whatever, all the things, being in relationship, out of relationship, whatever makes up our life, uh, that's our life. This is really this way. The world we live in is exactly this. And uh, can we come to value that and see it as a practice, not merely as a cliché. Some of you, those of you who've been in the groups, I ask people in the group, uh, what's your yogi job? Right? I mean, I do ask you. Because if we just say, uh, because what we're trying to do is emphasize that a retreat has a daily life as well. We do all the same thing. We go to the bathroom, we eat, we wash, we eye each other up, surreptitiously, of course, but we do it. Um, so <clears throat> all of that is going on, uh, and the, my feeling is this is a wonderful p a place to practice mindfulness and awareness in all these ordinary situations. We're going to take eating this evening uh, and give it a little bit of special attention. Um, because then it's protected here. It's safe. For example, just to get ahead of ourselves for eating, you can slow down a bit. You can uh, eat carefully. And I hope you can see that eating uh, can become something that has dharma implications in addition to nutrition and whatever else, uh, good tastes and so forth. Um, so that the point is that if we can practice, in a sense, developing respect. To me, the whole path is developing infinite respect. For what? For everything. Whatever it is you don't like about yourself uh, or the suffering you're going through or the problems you have, uh, respect doesn't mean you become a fool. It means that you really attend to it fully. You really open up to it fully. And in our practice, it's not just being mindful of it. Mindfulness uh, is not enough. Mindfulness also needs understanding to accompany it. That's when it becomes really potent and frees us. It's necessary but it can't carry the whole load. Okay, so my hope is that while we're here, we begin to develop an interest in the ordinariness that makes up a life here, whatever you're doing. Uh, because we can slow things down, it's simpler, we're not speaking, and that perhaps when we get back home, uh, that some of that can be taken into much more challenging situations. Uh, and uh, where, where we're not supported in certain ways. We're our hard-earned samadhi that we develop here as the mileage ticks off and the car gets closer and closer to Boston or New York, wherever you're going, there goes that samadhi. You know, as the mileage ticks off, the samadhi starts falling away. As a police car cuts you off and a siren goes and then uh, you stop and there's a long line at a toll booth and, uh, and then the, 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 et cetera. 
And then we say, well, what did I go to IMS for? I did my hard-earned samadhi. Where is it? Wisdom isn't in getting the samadhi. It's seeing that you're suffering because you got attached to samadhi. You got attached to what could eat more easily be accomplished here. The conditions here are set up to accomplish certain things, and they can. You have, we have to do our share. And of course, the conditions when we leave here are different. And so even if you, may, you lose the samadhi, uh, it's up to us. This perspective turns everything into an opportunity to wise up. Everything. There are no, everything that we call mistakes or challenges or obstacles, there are no obstacles. Everything is potentially our teacher. Everything. Your biggest suffering right now. But that requires us a, a, a dramatic attitudinal change where you realize it's showing you something about yourself by how you take to it. So that's why we're emphasizing this. We're emphasizing this because, and it's just the beginnings that I feel as lay people, we need a, a practice that is robust, that has vitality, and that can be developed in whatever forms make up our life. In Cambridge, this is very, very common. People will come into interviews, and we drill it into their heads about daily life. We even have special interviews that are longer to talk about whatever's going on, family life, work, school, etc. But if a person comes in for an interview, uh, how's your practice going? Oh, I didn't have time to sit much. You know, I, I feel like the truant officer sometimes, you know. You know I didn't ask you how much you sat or you didn't sat. I said, how's your practice going? But we hear practice as sitting. Sitting is precious. I try to sit every day. I love it. It's very, very helpful. But then it ends. And then what? Then do I fall off a cliff? Or I just become a, a complete raving idiot? Yeah, maybe. But what this is suggesting is practice in life start. At first, it's stilted a bit. And it seems like one is just a bunch of techniques we're learning. But you'll have to take this on faith to begin with. But if you do it and do it and do it, awareness turns out to be the best way to live, at least what I've discovered. If I found out that there never was a Buddha, that was made up in some think tank in Palo Alto, you, <laughs> you know, by some very intelligent people who got together, got a big grant, and just made up the suttas and made up everything. There never was Zen masters that some, you know, clever uh, writers from, you know, from TV put together all these beautiful quips and, you know, they're the, f the most fun is the Zen writings. You get a laugh out of it, at least. And if I found out it was all nonsense, all made up, so what would I do? Dra what would be my choice? Live a life of no awareness? Oh, this is, I've been fooled. There is no such, the Buddha never lived here. I'm just going to go back to being a dum-dum and just, uh, just bump into everything, do all the wrong things, cause suffering with everything I do. Uh, make myself miserable unnecessarily, which then drags everyone in my life down with me because the Buddha never really existed. Uh, I have found that whatever, however it got to be to us, there is a legacy that we have. I mean, I think the Buddha did exist. Uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is it's an intelligent way to live. What is an alternative to not living with awareness and an intention to learn? To live with no awareness and no intention to learn? With it, we're doing that already. We don't learn a thing. This is the war to end all wars, right? We study history so we don't make our mistakes again. I think we study history so we see we keep repeating our mistakes. <laughs> well, that's just me. I'm warped. I know that. You see what I'm getting at? Okay, so uh, this is just the first tiny step. We need a practice that's appropriate for the 21st century. Uh, for modern people who do live in an electronic age where all this is happening, and yet without losing sight of that in the teachings that are ancient, in a certain sense they're not even ancient, they're timeless. Suffering is suffering. If you hold on to things in a world, the, the world has always been changing. Impermanence is not just invented by the Buddha and just applies to the modern world. It's it, as true as any scientific law you want to cite. If you look around, everything is changing, and in uncertain ways, not according to our schedule. Well, if you cling and fixate and grasp, how can you not suffer in a changing world? You're insisting that the world be a certain way, and life is telling you, I don't care what you insist. It's going to insist on being the way it wants to be, and it just rolls on. 
and we're holding on to how we want it to be or how we want it not to be. How can you not suffer? Whether it's now, whether it's in India, whether it's in uh, Alaska, whether it's in Brooklyn, wherever you go. So there's a certain lawfulness that's human. And that to me is what is really precious. Meditation is the best way I have found to help uh, tap that and to then uh, make that work for me in my life, to help me live. Wisdom is the art of living. It's learning how to live skillfully. It's like any other art. It's a skill. You can learn it. And mainly we learn from our mistakes, from how we do create suffering. But you have to be, you have to enroll for the course. And then you have to come to class. We're already in class. It's just, we're, this is it. I don't mean IMS. I mean everywhere. Remember the, uh, the Zen archer? was aiming at the target and we were all waiting and then he just shot it up in the air the target's everywhere okay I did promise that we get to King uh, Pasanadi and a lot of you really want to hear that one right <laughs> the Donapaka Sutta and it's uh, sometimes translated in King Pasanadi goes on a diet it's a bit timely all right um, once when the Buddha was living at Savati, King Pasanadi of Kosala ate a whole bucket full of food and then approached the Buddha, engorged and panting, and sat down to one side. It is a little humorous. The, the Buddha, discerning that King Pasanadi was engorged and panting, took the occasion to utter this verse. When a person is constantly mindful and knows when enough food has been taken, all their afflictions become more slender. They age more gradually, protecting their lives. Let me give, uh, there's a lot that can be said about this very short sutra. If the Buddha had hair, I hope he's not pulling it out when he hears what I turned this sutra into. I hope it bears some resemblance to what the Buddha intended. I, and I've read some of the commentarial literature, so I think it, it does. It just, I'm trying to use it to convey something that in some ways, perhaps does go a bit beyond what the sutra says. First of all, it says, when a person is constantly mindfulness. Let's start there. Who's this person? You. Me. When we read sutras, oh, isn't that nice? It's kind of as antiquarians or historians of religion. Oh, that's interesting. So the ancient Indians talked this way, and they did that. Oh, that's nice. He was of this tribe and that caste. And oh, that's fascinating. It's about us. Otherwise... The sutta is worthless. And if you read the suttas, and most people don't, because it's like any classical teaching, it's like eating whole grains. You've got to chew it, but you get more nourishment from it. The refined stuff, ah, nothing to it. Chomp, chomp, chomp. And there's no nourishment in it either. Here's a nice watered-down teaching. Oh, it's just so simple. I get it. I get it. I understand. Yeah, and it's also worthless. Well, very limited. So this is whole grains that we're talking about. What is it, unmilled? Or, help me out, Jim. What's, what's the highest quality whole grains? You know, the kind of wheat you get and all that. Sprouted, but there's another word that you use sometimes. But it's, it's uh, okay, anyway. <laughs> you have to chew it. And, you, and, you, and, of course, you get more nourishment from it. Okay, so it's about us. If you re- and some of the suttas are not for us. No, no suttas for everyone, because the teaching was not for everyone. The reason there's so many of them is the Buddha adapted himself in a very beautiful way to the needs of the people. Most of it is not Dharma talks. It's just meeting people who had trouble, problems like us, and hearing them out, and then we get a kind of formulaic version of it. But what it was was a response to the challenges and difficulties that particular people were having, and he formed the teaching in ways that would be helpful for them, and maybe not for the next group of people, the next person he spoke to. So if you read suttas, and I would suggest you try them, um, if you don't connect with one, don't worry about it. Let it go. And and then if you connect with one, then stay with it. And and, uh, to me... They're very alive. They're about us right now, but maybe not at first reading. Okay, so when a person is constantly mindful, 
constantly. Okay, that, what, what that suggests is uh, a big, you know, there are sort of fashions in how people talk about the practice, having been in this, if you want to call it, line of work for many years now. And a big word that's in now is I noticed it. The other one is I was with it. Uh, there's another one, I, compl- I, I accepted it. There are a few others. I was, you know, this, but the, the one that I, at least in Cambridge, but I've heard it here already now, I noticed it. I felt some sadness. I noticed it. Noticing is, uh, is what? I noticed that there's the uh, sound equipment over there, and that's it. Oh, I noticed that I only have 10 minutes to go. Uh, that's it. It's more of a sustained attention. Now, some things are fleeting, so of course it doesn't apply. But here that means a, there's a constancy, a continuity, a care that sustains itself at whatever it is that you're mindful of. Mindfulness simply means uh, to keep something in mind. And in this case, let's say it's eating meditation. Remember, what I left you with was come to a meal and eat it with, as it, with a fresh mind, with no, as if it's the first meal you've ever eaten. I don't know if any of you did it. I didn't give you too much help because I wanted you to learn for yourself. Maybe tonight we can get a few more hints. At any rate, so constant is not such a small thing because, as you know, that the mind is awake and then it falls asleep and then it's mindful and then it's not mindful. And we can lose the mindfulness for minutes and even years. Uh, you know, people come back. I haven't seen you in about 10 years. Well, uh, I've, well what? You haven't been mindful? Of five, not one second in those 10 years. <laughs> but I'm coming back here now. Maybe I can make up for it. I don't think so. You know, that's all over with. Just start now. So that's an important element. And that grows with usage. You can't decide, I'm going to be mindful all the time, as people do. Because you've gotten A's in all your college courses, and then you've gotten rewarded, and you've got advanced degrees, and you've got a nice job. Well, I'll just get an A-plus in this and graduate with honors in this. Mm. It doesn't work that way. And there's often strain, and that's why people get feel one of the reasons people get tired is they're working too hard to be aware of what's happening in the moment. What's happening in the moment is right here with us. It's evident. It's what Doug was getting at last night. Just see it, hear it, chirp, chirp. You know, uh, we don't, it doesn't have to be so muscular, which then turns out to be tiring. It is because we're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to achieve something. We have a gaining idea. We want to. We want to do, do this the way we've learned every other skill. Be, be good at it. Be successful at it. Not be a nobody. A failure. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we're constantly mindful. Now what in the world? That sounds right. Mindful, you hear that all the time now. Mindful this, every books, every movies. It's... It's sprouting up everywhere. Everyone's being mindful. Great. Okay. In the Buddha's language, mindfulness is, is a little bit more limited than how it's being used. It's being, a lot is loaded onto it, so that it's, it's expected to carry a huge burden. Now, if you mean it that way and define it that way, it's okay with me, it's just the word. But in the Buddha's usage of mindfulness, its main meaning is to remember to keep something in mind, whatever that is. If it's mindfulness of breathing, then it's to keep the breath in mind, to turn towards, to remember to do that. Remembering is part of it. We forget, we remember. And then sampajanya, which is meant to accompany it all the time, sometimes called wise attention. That's an alert quality. Granted, you've remembered and you turn towards what it is you're mindful of, like food, in this case. Uh, Sampajanya is an alert interest, and so you see what happens as you attend to it. You not only are sensitive and alert, but you watch the effects of what's going on. And that's, of course, where the learning comes in. And then, you, and then it, it goes on because it has to be ardent. That's another word the Buddha uses. That means there's got to be some oomph in it, some interest. And if you're new, don't be disappointed if you don't have interest or if you don't love this practice. You can't force that kind of thing. Uh, but if you keep practicing what may happen to you, because there are many forms of meditation. This is one. It's a good one for those people who it's a good one for. Some of you may do better in other forms of meditation. I don't know. But ardency is a, a real keen interest. And then, of course, there's panya, wisdom. 
So that turning towards something and then being interested in it, refining that ability, uh, we call it seeing energy. The seeing, and it, it turns out it's a form of intelligence when the mind is very, very clear. We've been emphasizing that. That means there are no kilesas, no toxins in the seeing. There's no grabbing at the good stuff, pushing away the bad stuff, and then falling asleep and getting bored to death at the neutral stuff. It's, a, it's the mirror mind. We're dusting off the mirror in ancient terminology. And wisdom is what grows out of that, the real wisdom. There's verbal wisdom, which is helpful, like my little Dharma teacher who tells me what I just did, uh, why I'm suffering, a little tiny, teeny, microscopic suffering, because I wanted more of those chirps. And it's saying, see? You see what happened? You Look at that. Oh, look, even, even a chirp, a new kind of bird, and you're suffering already. <laughs> it has a Brooklyn accent. I can't help that. Intonation. Yeah. Uh, so Panya is understanding uh, you can call it intelligence, wisdom, understanding, insight. Uh, and there is verbal insight. There is reflective insight, which is useful, and that's using the thinking mind in an intelligent way. But the really transformative power has no thinking in it. It comes when the seeing is steady, clear, alert, sensitive, and interested. And it comes in close. If it's loneliness that you're with, and it comes in close, and it, you enter into communion with loneliness. You fully receive it, not the word, because the word has a bad press, as does fear. fear. And all, it, just the pure energy of whatever it is we're talking about. In this case, eating. Okay, so just the first line, you can see it's... Um, because what the Buddha is saying here, it's implying you've been bombarded with all... For us now, you've been bombarded with all these diets... Don't, you know, that have will and discipline involved. Just if you, wisdom is all you need, and then you'll be fine. You'll be home free. You'll be, have nice, slim body, and you, people, you'll have a new walk and new outfits, and people will admire you, and uh, you'll be, live to be 200 years old, and all the other things that happen when we trim down. Sounds good, but I don't think it's true. It depends on the depth of the understanding. And I think... Uh, what transforms us is when the insight becomes bone deep. Sometimes that comes about through a loss, the end of a marriage, the death of a loved person. Something happens, and we can either become reactive and just keep uh, fighting that and going the opposite direction all our life, or it can serve to free us. Um, fire is an easy one. We learned that one very early on. It, it's obvious. We don't touch fire. We can use it to cook, to warm ourselves, but you don't put your hand in it. We learn that one. And when the Buddha in the fire sermon says, the whole world is on fire, he doesn't mean that it's a nuclear age. What he's talking about is on fire with greed, hatred, delusion. Things haven't changed. It's just we have much more powerful weaponry now, but the same mind, dangerous. Wisdom is dwarfed by fantastic incredible technology, which demonstrates the brilliance of the human mind. So if we want to do something, we can. But it seems like we're not that motivated to know ourselves. I'm just judging by results. I'm not exempting myself. That apparently we've, uh, we're dazzled by the achievements of science and technology. We, people get incredibly excited. The newest gadgets, I can't keep up with them. People, you know, the younger the people are, the more they have some names. I don't know what they're talking about. Oh, do you have, I've text this person who would detext me and retext it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's fascinating. And if you go to cafes now, there's a very lively interaction between people and machines, you know, like computer. <laughs> or else... They're doing their, their PhD thesis. <laughs> Very serious, intensive. In the old days, we'd go to cafes with people. And we would also laugh and get serious. We'd argue about politics, and we'd uh, have fun over... They're drinking coffee and tea, too, and they're having muffins. But they're enjoying... The machine is their partner. <laughs> okay. Uh, am I exaggerating? 
a little bit. Okay. So there's a skill now, uh, and, and then it says, and knows when enough food has been taken. How do, how do you know when enough food has been taken? I had a fair amount of yoga training, and we were uh, counseled, I thought wisely, fill up the, uh, stop eating when, uh, when the body is one half full, one quarter liquids, and one quarter empty. That's not a bad formula, but what I found in implementing it is you have to pay attention to even know roughly what, what if you're doing that. And then I also found that sometimes it wasn't correct, that sometimes I needed a little bit more food, sometimes I needed a little more liquid, sometimes less of all of it. And that what I'm emphasizing is, is for, for us to learn. Those are just generalities. They're helpful. But as our Dharma teachings, you've got to this is what we mean by learning how to live. Wisdom is learning how to live, and you learn how to live by living and being interested. That's sampajanya. You're mindful. You turn towards your life, whether it's in relationship or sitting, and you watch what happens. And if you see things that come that come about that are that are cause suffering, you start unlearning that. And if you see things that are beneficial and helpful for you and for others, you strengthen that one. And in order to do that. It's, uh, you have to have, that's why we're doing all this training. We're, we're trying to equip the mind so it can do what, what the Buddha's talking about. But I think without it, it just sounds so simple, even simple-minded. So you know when enough food has been taken. And um, I'm going to ask my two colleagues if I can go a few minutes over. <laughs> no? Okay. They're, they're so good to me. They know that we can go two minutes, a few minutes over. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dad. Okay. I, I owe you. <laughs> okay. Um, you don't like walking meditation anyway, do you? We'll just <laughs> chuckle. <on that. laughs> okay. All their afflictions become more slender. The, on one level, the afflictions are physical. Now, here's what I, uh, I just want to add a little bit more. I think there's more to go with this. So we might need to use another talk to, to keep going with this. Uh, the afflictions are the kilesas. Greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the deeper meaning. On a more obvious meaning, surface meaning, it's nutritional afflictions. Now, if you just take some of the sense of this and add a bit to it, it's saying pay attention to what happens when you eat. There are many levels of benefit. First of all, you can improve your health. We all know that now. Uh, we hear a lot about risk factors and so forth. If it's physical appearance, that can be improved. Uh, but what's left out is wisdom. Because what this is arguing for, or uh, putting forward, it's not arguing anything I'm arguing, what it's suggesting is that what is the mind that gets involved? Now, I know we, science, we've learned that there are genetic factors and chemical imbalance factors, and th I'm not denying that. But clearly, the mind has a, a big part to play here. And so, uh, th if you do eating meditation here, where you can slow down and be very, very careful, let me just give you a few hints so that uh, how this becomes a Vipassana practice, in addition to, or is it uh, a bargain? It's on three levels. You know, it's a better bargain than any department store. Because simultaneously, if you do it, you can lose some weight. I should talk. But anyway, you should lose some weight. That, some of you are thinking that, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Uh, you become more attractive. I don't care anymore. I'm too old for that stuff. But some of you are still in the game, you know, right? I, you know, I left. I'm married. It's fine, you know. We, she's. A, we both accept ourselves. And, you know, let the other people drive themselves crazy. Okay. Uh, but here, how, what kind of wisdom? Let me give you examples. If you start the ne next meal, um, if you slow down and pay attention, you'll see. Uh, and this comes from the Satipatthana Sutta. There, there's a difference. That's the main meditation sutta of the Buddha, 
where mindfulness is really talked about in great detail and beautifully. Um, there's mindfulness of the body in the body. That's the way it's translated. It's a kind of awkward English phrase. Sometimes maybe a little bit better is, is the body in, in itself. That is pure bodily sensations. Just the, so food is taken. We chew. You can f- start right there. You can start right before. Start with what mind state are you coming to the food with? You can start even earlier online. You can start when you start seeing it and see what happens. Uh, uh, just learn about yourself. Uh, Vipassana is about learning about your own mind because that's the great mischief maker and that's where the liberation is. We're enslaved and liberated in our own mind. It's not somewhere else. Okay, so this gives us an opportunity to see the mind at work in a somewhat more restricted, limited area. We slow down, and here you can do it, and we watch. And then you can see there's a difference, and that's considered an insight. Insight into the distinction between the body, bodily life, bodily sensations as food is chewed, tasted, smelled, and then makes its way down and goes through its journey, and then what the mind does, uh, thinks about other things, uh, tells you stuff about it, uh, how wonderful it is, how awful, just whatever your mind does. I don't want, it's not that you're supposed to think anything in particular. I'm saying make it an exercise in self-discovery. And you'll see that the mind and the body, over this one insight, is insight into the distinction between mind and body. They're closely interrelated, but a major insight is this, and it helps you with pain. Because when we're in pain, physical pain, if we can't make that distinction, the mind can turn pain into torment, which it does all too easily. And so use this as a kind of a, a, a place to learn this, and you'll see what a, a huge role the mind plays. Here's a, an experiment that I just I read about before coming up here. I think it was at Cornell University. Scientists gave people... Uh, granola, the same granola. In one group, it said low-fat granola. These were all overweight people who volunteered for the research. In another one, it didn't say low, uh, low-fat granola, but it was the identical granola. The people, they, where those people who ate the low-fat granola ate f- 49% more granola. <laughs> And then they, they did it with chocolate as well, different group of people. And they also ate, uh, they ate a very high percentage, uh, the people who were told low-fat chocolate. They were identical, and the same thing happened. Uh, so you can see the mind is very, very powerful. Um, typically, when does a meal end? They studied Parisian women and Chicago women. Uh, and what they found is the women in Chicago ended it when the plate was clean or when the TV show they were watching ended. Um, and the Parisian women ended it when they felt full. In other words, they were using internal indicator. And often, check yourself, we use an external. And we've been brought up, people are starving in India, you better finish your meal. I was brought up that way. Uh, if I didn't, I don't see where it helped people in India, but OK, so I, I did it. Um, do you see what I'm getting at that? now? Let's go further, let's go for, uh, into the ridiculous, so you get that the mind is very powerful at what it can do. If you came, let's say if my wife and I invited you uh, to our home, and you came as guests, and we, served, we came in and we said, you know, here's some fish. We didn't have time to cook it. It's just you know, raw fish. Uh, you know, uh, honey, I think I, I, we better, would you be happy, would you ever come back? But if we came in and we said, here's some sushi. Oh, (laughs) sushi. That's different. That's a whole different story. Or if you came another time and we just said, here's some uh, food, here's some meat. It's burnt. You know, we just, and we say, burnt, they're serving us burnt food, honey. And to say, like, it's, uh, what? No, it's from Louisiana. Cajun. Oh, it, it's Cajun. Cajun? Oh. That's different. It's totally different. Let, oh, it's delicious. It's burnt. <laughs> okay. 
So the mind is very powerful, and it's making up stories all day long. And we believe in most of them, and that's why we come here. This is we're we're seeing through our stories. Okay, so this is enough uh, for tonight. Seven minutes. I, I owe you. <laughs> I owe both of you. Each one of you. Three and a half to you. Three and a half. Okay. Um, there's more to go on this, believe it or not, uh, but. I don't mean this to be limited to food. What I mean is uh, what I'm saying about, about eating applies to everything that you do throughout the day. If you pay attention, uh, you can begin to learn about yourself because uh, uh, what the Buddha did to me that's revolutionary is he did, we all have the same experiences. But what the Buddha did is what's revolutionary is a new way to relate to what's happening to you a new approach to your experience where you neither grasp on nor do you push away, but you become aware of. I'm not saying he's the only one who did it, but he did a very good job of it. And it turns out that our relationship, everything is teaching us, a relationship to nature, to food, to each other, of course, that's the hardest one. Uh, Learning how to take care of the body. Sometimes people, uh, fear is used to help us lose weight. And as in one interview last night, the person said, uh, that won't work with me. Uh, in this, uh, what is being suggested is when you develop the wisdom, there's a caring for the body and caring for the vital, precious energy called health that we have so it can be used to live well. Um, at any rate, let's end it here. But approach it. Try eating, and it's not that you have to come with a lot of ideas. Come with, a fresh, uh, with fresh attention so-called beginner's mind, don't know mind, not knowing mind, all of you've heard of these, okay? No gaining idea mind. And just watch what happens. Learn about how you eat. Because what can happen is you learn how to take better care of yourself. Uh, some of the formulas that exist may be helpful, but it's, it, you have to tailor it to yourself. You'll learn how much food you need, what kinds of food you need, what foods influence the mind in positive and negative ways. Some foods incline not just quantity, some foods incline, this is from yoga, some foods incline the mind to become very sleepy. Some foods um, very um, restless, activated, like, and some foods very subtle. Obviously, if you're a meditator, uh, you want to incline it so you, it's more, the food is more of that quality, that, especially on a retreat, and quantity. You learn how much sleep you need and so forth. So to me, the, we're learning how to live and that can give you a lot of energy as you learn all these things. It's firsthand. You're learning about yourself as you live. And even the smallest piece of learning that you make firsthand, that isn't the Buddha's or whoever your favorite teacher is, you learned it for yourself. It's yours now. It's not borrowed. Uh, that gives you energy and inspiration. And let's see where that goes. And it applies to mopping and toilets and vacuuming and putting on your shoes and getting dressed and undressed and showering. Uh, Pay attention, but in a relaxed, uh, lighthearted way and learn. Okay, thank you. Uh, Could we have a few, just a few seconds of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.